Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. The following podcast is one of Robert's original messages to men on manhood, found here under the series heading, Authentic Manhood. As you listen to it, we hope it will give you both personal encouragement and spiritual inspiration to live better as a man. As we talk about this uh, final wound, I want you to know, I think this and the next two messages are the most important messages a man could hear concerning authentic manhood. And so these are very, very important truths that we're going to be talking about. Up until this point, we've been talking mostly about wounds that have been inflicted upon us through our environment. You notice on your outline, I call them the nurture wounds. Uh, Maybe you grew up in a difficult environment. Uh, You maybe grew up in very unique circumstances that you feel like uh, shaped or even warped for a period of time your life. Maybe it was the lack of friends, the lack of family. Uh, Maybe you identified real strongly with the fact that uh, dad wasn't there for me. And because he wasn't, it left this huge open void in my soul. Or maybe it was the fact that mom moved in and overly bonded with you. Or maybe the fact that you've never had people come alongside of you who could kind of point the way. And so life has been just one series of disappointing guesses after another. And some of those have hit some very serious dead ends. And so last week when we talked about the fact of having a mentor, there was something inside of you said, man, I would have given anything in my life to have had someone older than me who admired me that would come alongside of me and point the way. Maybe as you thought about your life, you said, you know, those have been the kind of wounds that have altered my social behavior the same way a physical wound alters physical behavior. Those are what I call nurture wounds. But the wound we're going to talk about this morning is a wound that goes beyond nurturing. It's a profound wound that doesn't have anything to do with environment at all. It's the wound that's stamped on our nature from birth. And my goal this morning is to convince each of you that you have this wound. Now remember I said at the beginning that every man carries a suitcase. You remember the suitcase that was up here and I told you that how a man unpacks that suitcase will determine the character and the quality of his life later on. Unpacking our suitcase is a necessary first step in the quest for authentic manhood. And so we've been unpacking that suitcase, but maybe along the way as we did that, you've been kind of making your checklist and you've said, listen, I had a good dad growing up. Uh, My mom wasn't overly involved in my life at all. And I had friends in my life, some really good friends, and we're still friends. And on top of that, I've even had a couple of mentors who have helped me along the way. And so uh, as we've been going through those wounds, you've been checking off that, hey, my life has been pretty good. If some of these guys have been hurt like that, I haven't. And so along the way, you've maybe excused yourself from all that and said, I've, I've been a guy who's had a rich background. And so let's just say that you're one of those few good men. All right? And so you don't have a suitcase. All you've got is a briefcase. 
That's all you carry. But if you're one of those quality guys who had that rich background, I want you to know you still carry this. And there may only be one wound in there, but it's there. So we're going to open it up and we're going to pull it out. And here it is. This is what you carry within that small briefcase. And every man carries it. It's this black heart. And it represents a defective nature that we're born with that can still corrupt our lives no matter how good or how healthy our backdrop. We've had it all, a good dad, a good mom, good friends, good mentors, but we still have a defective heart, a defective nature that Paul expressed this way in Romans 7. I want you to look on the screen and see if you can identify with this. Here's what he says. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I am practicing what I would, I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Now let me just ask you guys, man to man, you had that experience? The good that you know you can't do. The wishing is present in you. But the doing of the good is not. And the very thing that you don't want to do, you end up doing and you ask yourself, why? And deep within, there's a sinister force that we need to talk about. And every man must come to terms with that force if he's going to be an authentic man in life. Years ago, uh, in the 70s, I was doing graduate work at Lewis and Clark College. I was working on my, my master's degree in counseling psychology. And I was introduced there to a number of differing psychoanalytic approaches to human behavior. And one of the things that I came to understand as we looked at the different approaches to human behavior is that many of the ones that I was being presented there at Lewis and Clark all had a common root. They were all built on a common foundation and that common foundation was the basic goodness of man. And I remember one particular book, textbook that we were given on the front, it had this innocent looking little girl standing at the beach with her arms outstretched. It was just really the picture of innocence. And the title of the book was Born to Win. It was a 70s kind of book. And it, that was an audacious kind of presupposition about life. Because who says that we're all born to win? And if we're born to win, and since we have this kind of plethora of psycholo uh, psychological facilitators that are constantly in America promoting 
self-esteem and self-awareness and self-empowerment and self-understanding and self-fulfillment, if all that's taking place in our culture and we're born to win, why aren't we all winners? Isn't that, a, isn't that at least an honest question to ask? If we're born to win, why is it that oftentimes we lose? And why is it that oftentimes I screw up in life and I actually find myself doing the very things I don't want to do? And I've told myself over and over again, I need to stop doing. And I see these ugly things of life and yet I'm pulled right into them. If I'm born to win, why do I do those kind of things? Maybe, just maybe, it's because we don't know the real truth about ourselves. We haven't looked deeply into our briefcase, our suitcase, and understood the most profound wound of all that's not of nurture, but is in our very nature. Today in America, we want answers about why we aren't winning. And most of the ones that are being offered for us on why we're losing out in life are what I call half-truths. And what I mean by half-truths are things that are offered to us that, that have some validity to them, but they don't go all the way in explaining why we are the way we are. I want to give you five of the, or four of the half-truths that affect life in America today. Here's the first. Some say we're losing out because of poor self-esteem. The self-esteem credo goes like this. There are no bad people, only people who think badly about themselves. Winners feel good about themselves. And so in schools all across America, you have school children chanting the mantra, I am somebody, I am somebody, to feel good about themselves and to feel good about themselves regardless of their circumstances. And as a result, positive self-esteem is way up in America today. In a survey in 1940, 11% of women and 20% of men agreed with the statement, I am an important person. That was 1940. In 1995, 66% of all women and 62% of all men agree that I am an important person. So we're feeling good about ourselves. And personally, I'm okay with that. But here's the point. Does that mean we're living better? The fact that we're feeling better, are we living better? Has it helped divorce in America? Or drug addiction? Or the crime problem? Or child abuse? Or spousal abuse? Or racism, just to name a few? Is America better off morally today than it was in 1940? Are we living at a higher standard, winning more than those were winning in 1940? I don't think so. Students from six different nations were asked to respond yes or no to the question, to this question after they had taken a standardized math test. The question was, yes or no, I am good at mathematics. So six different nations participated that, young people from six different nations. And after they took the test, I am good at mathematics. American students scored the highest on that question. They said, 68% said, I am good at mathematics, although they scored last <laughs> in, in the actual mathematics test. 
Korean students, on the other hand, only 25% of the Korean students said, I am good at mathematics. They scored first in the world in the actual test. Now, here's the point. Feeling good about yourself is no guarantee that you're going to do good, that you're going to be good. Secondly, some say we're losing out because others are to blame. One of the big problems for men is they think their problems are all out here in life. And over the last 30 years, Arthur Charles Sykes has called America increasingly a nation of victims, where our national anthem is the wine. We like to whine, we like to blame, we like to say it's other people's fault. Blame is commonplace everywhere. I remember years ago when they had the great LA riots. Do you remember that? Do you remember the scene where we watched on TV where two men, Damien Williams and Henry Watson, pulled out a young guy named Reginald Denny out of a truck and took a brick and threw it and crushed his skull in and then did a victory dance over him? And everybody got to watch that. It was not the fact that anybody lacked evidence, but when it went to court, the two guys who did that to Reginald Denny were dismissed and acquitted by a legal defense team that convinced the juries that those two guys did that because they simply just got overstimulated during the riots. And then last night, I was watching NBC News and watched a group of lawyers who are now suing McDonald's on the court of a bunch of fat kids saying that McDonald's caused them to be overweight. We're a nation of victims who love to blame others for our problems and see that all our issues are out there. That's why I'm losing. And you know, guys in particular whine a lot. They say, if my wife could just be better, if my job could just be better, if I just had somebody who cared about me, more friends or this or that, if all these things out here could just get right, then I would win. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. And that's, not, that's why I'm not the man that I should be. Is that true? Are you losing because of somebody else? Third, we're offered the half-truth that we're losing because of a lack of education. Now, I've always been somebody who has been a strong proponent of education, but somewhere in our past, we began to assume that if we're educated enough, we'll act responsibly. So let me ask you, Christmas is coming, and you know you shouldn't overeat. Will you? I was at the Waffle House the other day and a guy came in and sat down in a booth next to me and we struck up a conversation. We were the only ones in there and he began to tell me how he had lost his job. And I was kind of empathizing with him and as we talked, uh, he said yes, yeah, because he had heart problems, he'd had a triple bypass and he looked pretty weak. He had just gotten out of the hospital and as he was talking, the waitress came up and he ordered three eggs uh, a double order of hash browns, covered, scattered, and smothered, and a double order of bacon. And I thought, what's wrong with this picture? 
<laughs> Are we educated about the value of exercise? Do we do it? See, most people don't. We're the most uh, out of shape generation in the history of America. High risk groups are told all the time that their life is on the line with unprotected sex, with smoking, with drug abuse, with binge drinking. Does that stop students from doing it? No. Something's deeper in us that's the problem. Child experts tell us that the healthiest and best environment for a child growing up is to have a parent in the home nurturing that child, especially in the earliest years of life, ages one through four. And the reason for that is because a child's emotional, social, and intellectual health is set. Most of it is set in the first four years of life. And Every child expert tells us it's absolutely essential that that child in the first four years of life get maximum parental attention. I could give you volumes of information on that truth. And yet with all of that coming out, more and more moms and dads are abandoning the home for the workplace. In the year 2010, over 80% of all mothers with children under four will be back in the workplace six weeks after they give birth. So all that education means nothing. And it doesn't solve about the problem about why we're losing out on life. Could it be that there's a deeper problem we're uncomfortable talking about? Then some say today we're losing out because of defective genes. That, that's become a great new revelation to Americans. Scientists tell us that we were born this way, that the reason we act out the way we do is because of genetic issues. And it gives us a reason to exonerate ourselves and say, it's not my fault, I was born this way. Or when we offer a cry for help, the reason I can't stop is because I was born this way. And I want you to listen very closely because when we say I was born this way, we become, we start getting real close to what theologians have been saying for 2,000 years. Your problem, your most fundamental problem, Augustine would have said back in 400 AD or Martin Luther would have said in 1500 AD or John Calvin or Charles Wesley in the 1700s or any number of popes through the centuries, or Billy Graham in our day, they would say, you know, you're getting close because your problem is in your birth. Guys, look at me. We have a spiritual problem. And that's something people don't like to talk about for some reason. They don't like to go really deep and discover that deep within themselves, there really is a heart wound. What I want to do is just take a moment, begin to introduce to you just the backdrop to this particular wound. It's fundamental to everything in life, social, moral, practical, and spiritual. Even though it's uncomfortable to talk about and disturbing to contemplate, but this wound alone provides the context for everything in our life. 
In the Bible, it's the doctrine that makes everything else in the Bible make sense. It's the reason why we are the way we are much of the time. It is the hidden truth behind all of life's trouble. So what is it? On your outline, here's what it is. It is that cursed condition known as the depravity wound. Now that may be a new term for some of you here today. That this black heart that I held up, you can write over it, the depravity wound. It's something that's not talked about even in churches. And yet, I find that surprising because it's the backdrop from which everything else in the Bible speaks to. It's like a running back who tears his ACL. If you've ever seen that in a game, when a guy tears his ACL, he doesn't go over to the sideline and they say, it's just a sprain. They don't just put some tape on it and send him back into the game. Because when you tear your ACL, it's the absolute worst injury your knee can have. The knee is totaled. And something much more uh, significant has to take place in order for him to be healed. And I want you to know it's the same way in society. Oftentimes, we're trying to heal society with tape and with a quick scope job, like self-esteem or blaming it on a gene or better self-esteem, thinking that somehow that's going to get us back in the game because we were born to win. But I want you to know if the heart is torn, and I believe that it is, if it is in fact wrecked, a little tape and a scope job is not going to make us win. Here's what the scripture says about our heart. Look at what it says in Jeremiah 17. It says this, the heart. Now he's speaking to each one of us. You could put my heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Ecclesiastes says it this way. This is the way King Solomon said it. He said, furthermore, as he had looked at the world and looked at life and examined men, he said, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. There's a sickness deep within and it wasn't given by mom or dad or friends or the lack of them or in my environment or circumstances. I was born with it. A defective heart. Now let me give you a definition of the depravity wound. It's letter B on your outline. It says this, we are all fallen and defective creatures at odds by nature with our creator and with each other. Now this may come for some of you guys I know as a complete kind of cold water in the face. Have you ever thought of yourself, awakened in the morning, looked in the mirror and said, you know, I'm depraved. There's something wrong with my nature. And yet that's fundamental to all of life. It's to understand what's wrong with man. The Bible says that when mankind fell in Adam, the whole human race was cursed by God. I want you to listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great theologian, said in his book, The Plight of Man. It's still a classic. He said, man has fallen away from God and as a result, his whole nature has become perverted. Man's whole bias is away from God. By nature, his God is himself. 
He objects to the demands that God makes on him. Furthermore, man likes and covets the things which God prohibits and dislikes the things and the kind of life God calls him to. These are no mere dogmatic statements. These are facts which alone can explain the moral muddle and ugliness that characterizes our life. In other words, when I go through the day and interact with the situations that confront me, deep within myself is something that's twisting everything and oftentimes bringing me into situations that fail for me. And I want to blame. I want to point some direction and say, this is the problem. But where the fingers need to be curved to is back to me and in my very nature. Now, some have dismissed the wound of depravity because I've talked to them because they assume that depravity means that you're going to be as bad as you can possibly be. And since they observe in themselves and in other people that they're not, that there's some goodness in them, that they like to help people from time to time, that this doctrine must be an error. But here's what I want you to hear, guys. The doctrine of depravity never means that people will be as bad as they can possibly be. It just means that they are as bad off as they can possibly be because they are born without God. And they are born with a nature that's bent on self, not selflessness. And they, they have an inclination towards and bent towards evil, not goodness. And where the opportunities present themselves to indulge that nature, they are powerless oftentimes to choose anything but that. That's what depravity means. Now, let me speak specifically to what um, this doctrine speaks to. First, it means that I'm separated from God and under His judgment. Ephesians 4.18 says that I was born excluded from the life of God. We're not born into the kingdom of God. We're born excluded from the life of God, the Scripture says. Depravity means that I'm under, in a sense, a death sentence. I was born without God at the start of this life. And unless in some way I find God in this life, I will die without God. Secondly, it means that I've inherited a corrupt nature that no human agency can cure. A good dad can't cure it. A good mom can't cure it. A good job can't cure it. King David said it this way in Psalm 51.5, he wrote, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, now listen, this is a hard thing to say. In other words, I was born to lose. That's how I was born. To lose, not to win. The famous Westminster Confession. Some of you maybe grew up with quoting the Westminster Confession. It puts it this way. Our first parents, that is Adam and Eve, and some people say, no, you don't believe in Adam and Eve. Oh, yeah, I do. I hope you know that recently the genetic research that we talked about has traced the whole human race to one man and one woman. That's fact. That every one of us, red, yellow, black, and white, 
We all come from one set of parents. The whole human race has one stock. The Westminster Confession, believing that years before it could be proven, just simply said this, Our first parents fell and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. They being the root of all mankind, this same corrupt nature was conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. That means that our corrupt nature that we have inherited from our distant parents is given to us at birth. And it can't be eradicated by education or a better environment or better self-understanding or counseling or money or even willpower. It defies all these things. And that's why we find ourselves saying, just like the Apostle Paul said 2,000 years ago, the very things I hate, I do. Even while the wishing for the good is in me, the doing of the good is not. What is that? The Bible says it's that depraved heart that you were born with. And it defies everything. When Jesus came into the world and he looked at mankind and he said these words, that's why you must be born again. Thirdly, my corrupt nature left unaddressed inevitably corrupts my life with sin. Now we get introduced to the word sin. Sin being those everyday acts of selfishness, greed, immorality, pride, anger, hatred, impurity, and so on and so on that come into my life and spoil my life and ruin my dreams and hurt the people I love through me and leave me with an empty life and full of guilt. It's the hidden reality behind every life cut off from God. We sin because we have this sinful nature that comes from this wounded heart and we hurt ourselves and we do things we never intended and we wonder why we got there and why we've hurt others in the process. All this goes back to the deepest wound of all. Not of nurture. It's our nature. Now I want to mention two things before we go into small, our small groups about this fundamental flaw. Here's the first one. This depravity wound that we're introducing here today and we need to talk about requires a spiritual solution that only God can give. If it is in fact spiritual, it can only be handled spiritually. Only God can change this corrupt nature. Only He can bend what has been bent towards the wrong back towards the right. Only God can give the power, I believe, necessary to move you away from evil and give you the power to do the things that you wish for. And I stand here as one who can testify of that in my own life. Previous generations understood that. That's why previous generations would cry out to God, God have mercy on me. Those were cries for deliverance. Not from circumstances, but from myself. God have mercy on me. Without you, I'm going to lose, not win. 
Which brings me to point B. Admitting my depravity wound is the essential first step to finding a real authentic relationship with God. Not just finding more religion. God save us from that. You see, what I'm giving you is the context for all spiritual life. Without it, we just go to church and we participate in spiritual exercises thinking somehow it's just going to give us a lift. But if you understand what I'm saying today, you're not looking for a lift. You're looking for deliverance. What the Bible calls salvation from self. Because this wound is so profound. It's only when we recognize that that we have that true condition that God even makes sense at all. Guys, did you know when Jesus Christ came to earth, when he preached his very first message, his very first sermon in front of people, his very first words were these. Look at them on the screen. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now just look at the verse for a minute. You can move by it so quickly. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Ha Let's put it this way. Happy are those who are poor in their heart. What's he talking about there? He's saying the people who will really make it in life, the people who will become authentic in life, the people who will finally understand what it means to win are those who first recognize that within there's poverty. Within, there's woundedness. Within, there's depravity. And once they recognize that, then they have a path to deal with it. But they've got to first recognize that. In 1984, a Spanish Avianca Airlines jet crashed in Spain. Everybody aboard was killed. The black box that was recovered revealed that several minutes before the impact, a computer went off in the pilot's cabin. That shrill voice that began to speak to the pilot and the system cried out over and over again, pull up, pull up. But the Spanish pilot didn't know English. And for some reason, he thought that the system was malfunctioning. And so as they replayed these final minutes before the crash, they heard the box say, pull up, pull up. And finally, you heard the Spanish pilot say in his own native tongue, shut up, gringo, and he turned the system off. And then a couple of minutes later, the plane slammed into a mountainside and everybody was killed. Did you know God's automatic warning system is the Bible? And it's been faithfully warning every man since the beginning of time that our natural instinct is selfish and sinful, that our nature is contemptible and depraved and wounded from birth, and that our natural direction is down. And it cries out, Pull up. Pull up. And you can say, shut up, God. 
Or you can say, tell me how to pull up. We're going into the Christmas season. It's a very sacred time. The next two weeks could possibly be the most important two weeks of your life. Because in the next two weeks, I'm going to tell you how. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.